Expedition 44, here again with Matt and Ryan. We are on our church series. This is part 12. And this is what I would call a bridge episode because up until now, we've really been introductory. Mm -hmm. And so today is a bridge because it's still sort of introductory, but it's going to set the tone for where we are headed. As usual, we're going to kind of start off very theological, but this one's a little bit different too because we're going to end with a very kind of open-ended uh, coffee house, campfire, philosophical conversation on dispensationalism. So we want to start out with a recap of where we've been, which is really the Revelation Christ message to the seven churches. Give us a little bit of a open to that. Yeah, and the basically the whole reason we started with this is the seven messages are pointing towards the direction that the body of Christ should be living in because yeah. it's Jesus telling these churches about his ideals and and what what they're doing and so they kind of had this idea of what they should be doing but they, they got off track yeah. got it got entangled and quite often people have asked us well why would you start out with the seven churches of revelation and um this was more of like when Jesus is talks about the kingdom of God in the gospels yeah. he doesn't say well Here's a checklist of the things the kingdom of God is. Right. And he paints a mosaic picture. Kingdom of God is like yeast and dough. Kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. The kingdom of God is like a pearl or a treasure or something like that. And so we wanted to kind of maybe take the, a bit of the Jesus way of teaching and paint a mosaic through these seven churches the way that the, John does and see what messages it has for the church today. And it's interesting that the seven churches, the, the Jesus' word to them, isn't all that um, mosaically crazy. It's not like mm -hmm. a Picasso where yeah. you have to sit there and interpret over and over. I mean, it starts just kind of laying it out very clearly. Mm -hmm. Now, the rest of Revelation might Maybe. kind of get apocalyptic style, more of your modern art mm -hmm. flair or something yeah. like that with trying to interpretation. But but the beginning of it is this message to the seven, and I even say the last couple chapters of Revelation. Get practical. <laughs> get practical. So it starts off very practical. It ends very practical. The middle might be a little bit like that, but we're going to get into that today of it's not as crazy is what most people want to make yep. it out to be. Yeah, so we kind of took some of the things from these seven churches to see what, for the the church as a whole, what things Jesus wanted. So the message of Ephesus was it was a church that had it all together. Uh, it had discernment, perseverance, good works. But the thing we saw is they were very legalistic and they lacked love for one another within the church. And Jesus says that he's going to remove their status of a church, their identity as a faithful witness like removing their lampstand, he calls yep. it, because they don't love one another. And so even though they had pure doctrine, all of this good stuff, but it means absolutely nothing is what he says without love for one another. And Jesus says, you will know you are my followers because of your love for one yeah. another. So the main issue, the message we get out of the letter to Ephesus, if I was going to kind of carry over to where we are today, is I'd say that the first mark of a healthy church is that we need to love each other inside of it and then have love zooming out of it. So mm -hmm. people look in yep. and want what we've of. got. Yep. Um, so Smyrna was the next church we did. And so Smyrna gets no correction. It was a church that suffered. And remember, Smyrna was the center of patriotism kind of in Asia Minor there. And so uh, this church was suffering both at the hands of the religious establishment and at the hands of the empire because they stood up for the gospel. That yeah. Jesus was Lord and Caesar was not. Yep. And so they got persecuted because they didn't participate in the empire right. and its worship. There is so much practical correlation mm -hmm. to this. So when we when we read this one and we say, today, 2,000 years removed, what do we get out of it? The second mark of a faithful church is that we need to suffer in Jesus' name. That's part of what mm -hmm. we signed up yeah. for. If we're doing it well, that's what it should look like. So be faithful all the way even unto death. And this is where I say, how are we doing with that? Well, we don't know too many martyrs. So. Yeah. Yeah, uh, Pergamum was the next one. So this is a church that was very entangled. And uh, the ways of Babylon, as McKnight said, were seeping into the church. And yep. so Pergamum was uh, also a very political capital of the area. He gives them a correction re relating to Balaam and the Nicolaitans. And it seemed that the practice of Balaam was being entangled in immorality and idolatry. And the thing about the Nicolaitans was about having power over rather than being a servant. Yeah. And so... So when I look at this and I do the, the kind of the takeaway, I, I don't think it's any secret to, if you've watched any of our videos, my, my big thing in life is the preeminent calling of 
the message of Jesus to the church was to make intimate disciples, to bring other people to that. So the third mark, what, what we take away out of this of a faithful church is to be set apart from the world. And this is kind of creating a culture of servanthood, of mutuality. We get a lot of communal language in this mm -hmm. and it's power under leading yep. as a servant and not power over. Yep. So Thyatira is the next one, and this is a church that loved each other really well. They yeah. are kind of the opposite of Ephesus, but um, and they were growing in good deeds. Jesus praises them for it, but um, if you remember in our episode, Thyatira was um, a military outpost and also home to a ton of trade guilds, and Jesus corrects them for tolerating things in the teachings of Jezebel, which we saw were immorality, uh, power over systems, self-seeking motives, the ways of Babylon, basically. And then our message here is going to be kind of carrying over from the last one. Mm -hmm. So you still, it even takes this power under over yeah. step one further. So we get good doctrine. It gets theology, results of standing up, although standing up is in yeah. kind of humility yeah. and able to do that, that we might kind of get to this place where we are rolling in a biblical sense of the, the word of bringing order by the way of Jesus into the chaos of the world. Yep. Uh, then Sardis, the Sardis was a church that looked good on the outside, but was dead on the inside. Mm -hmm. So this is talking about relying on self-made um, outward health rather than letting the spirit produce fruit on the inside, which overflows. And so we could look at churches maybe today with huge attendance, large buildings, yeah. but they can be completely empty of God's presence. And that's what the message of Sardis kind of talks about. And this is one that really hits home. Like when you, when you read the message to Sardis, and I actually think it was one of our probably out of the one, the seven, I think it was the best one because it's so relevant to mm -hmm. us today. I mean, you read this and what have we done? We've turned church into this, you know, big thing. And, you know, this say, it says, we want you to be reliant on God, the Holy Spirit to move and mm -hmm. to create disciples and look good on the inside. Don't be too concerned with, with what the world thinks yeah. or what's going on, but be a core of people that are deeply devoted. Yeah. It's uh counter to the butts in the pews, bills in the plates, yep. buildings on the campuses, exactly. McKnight said. Yep. So it's about creating disciples quality over quantity. Exactly. Um, Philadelphia is the next one. So Philadelphia um, is a church that held on to Jesus' word and did not deny his name. Um, they surf, uh, They had a lot of persecution, especially coming from the Jews, the religious establishment. Yep. And though they were very small, Jesus says that they are pillars. Yep. And so Jesus' message to this church is an exhortation to persevere in the way of discipleship. Yeah. So the, the preeminent message that I would take away mm -hmm. to us and how we apply this to the church today is that we kind of get this hold fast language of, mm -hmm. you know, keep the race. It's kind of Paul, stay the mark, run mm -hmm. the race, be faithful. But it's prefaced by being all in, mm -hmm. making him everything. And today, I'm not sure we really know the biblical first century description of being all in. And I say this a lot, but when, when, when Jesus says, come be my disciples, leave it all on the beach. It took three times to get there because they didn't know what he meant. You yeah. know, it was, it was outside of their culture. It was strange in their culture. And it's even stranger today. This is one place where I think we've actually gone the other way rather than gravitate towards this all in disciple. We've wanted to really be part of the world and be immersed in the world rather than to be immersed in Jesus and let the world come to us. Yeah. Uh, Laodicea is the last church, the seventh church, and so Laodicea we knew was extremely rich. They were self-centered, self-sufficient. Um, they took on the local culture of materialism, of individualism, of independence, um, and Jesus calls them poor, blind, and naked. Yeah. Uh, so Laodicea, like if you remember when we did that episode, they rejected Rome's help yep. um, to rebuild after an earthquake, and that kind of became their entire mindset and when jesus talks to them about he wished they were hot or cold um he's referring to the water there that he wished the church rather than because that they're so self-sufficient they're actually like lukewarm water in jesus mouth that isn't refreshing and isn't healing and he wants this church to live out their discipleship um in a way that actually brings refreshment and brings healing to people around them but because they're so stuck on themselves they're yeah. useless for the kingdom and this one is beautiful. I think it just concludes it as a final mark of a faithful church that we need to be completely reliant on Jesus. And today, especially 
but it was a problem in their culture mm -hmm. too. So I don't want to just make it yeah. look like it's today the last dispensation. You know, it's yeah. it's been we it's been a that. problem for two thousand years in that man is really esteeming to be God. That he almost doesn't need God anymore because he thinks he's got it all together. So this is a message of you know kind of getting back to being a faithful witness, a devout disciple, and it's laced in humility. So you'll notice all seven of these messages are really tied in together. One kind of works on the other one and kind of completes the picture of what a healthy church looks like. And I like to go back to the Jesus as the healer metaphor, that this is kind of like a Jesus presented himself the, as a healer in the synoptics, and now he's coming back and kind of giving a church checkup and saying, all right, now if you really want to live faithfully, if you want to be the best picture of a healthy church, take something away from these messages or these writings and that's mm -hmm. exactly what we get and how are we doing with that today that's a hard one yeah. it doesn't seem like we're much better off than the first century when this was written yep so those are that's a recap of the seven churches and now we're going to kind of do a little bit of a bridge because we've been asked um about why we don't really hold the dispensationalism we we, we poke a, a, at it in in our videos but we we see that it's um it's a, a theology that we don't necessarily agree with, but also it has some ramifications when you hold to this that really affect the way a healthy church. Yeah. So most people know that my I went to Moody right out of high school, and Moody is kind of considered the dispensational kind of Harvard of Bible colleges. And one thing that I've kind of noticed is that because of a lot of things that we've traditionally been taught or historically been taught, but more now than ever before, we've kind of taken some of these dispensational thoughts and a lot of people just think that that's what the Bible says or they accept them as the truth of the scripture. And as Matt said, we're often throwing rocks at dispensationalism, but we've never really come out with a series of saying, here's the problem with dispensational thinking. And this is one of the reasons why we don't like it. And actually it's more than just simply not liking it. We yeah. think it's divisive. We think it's destructional to the church today and actually completely opposite of the message that Christ gave us. Yep. So, um, as we do this, we're going to unpack some scripture, not leaving any rock unturned. Just so this of... is the theo theological part you're used to, is yep. going through and saying this. But then the second half kind of turns into, as I alluded earlier, more of a campfire discussion yeah. of Matt and I just talking about the issues with it. And I think with the, the reason we go here is because the majority of the things that we talk mm -hmm. about are very theological. Yeah. We talk about doctrine. We talk about things that are sound. Dispensationalism is actually hardly in the scripture at all. You'd be hard pressed to find it. So unfortunately, we have to have kind of a more philosophical, non-theological conversation because it's really not in the Bible. Yeah. Um, so when we look at Revelation in and of itself, the, the primary message is about the, the self-sacrificial love of Christ and how the church the churches in Revelation are supposed to take that on, being a faithful witness, yeah. and that upward trajectory when they live this out results in new heavens and new earth by yeah. the Spirit working through the church, the Spirit walking in step with the Lamb, yeah, um, and that right. is the whole trajectory of Revelation, not crazy end-time beasts and humans yeah, exactly. and, and empires and all of that. It's it's how the church counters that by by living as a faithful witness. So when God created the earth and he establishes Eden, we get a picture of his ideals and he created everything with a purpose. There's like a, a rational structure where he's going to partner with humans, his treasured possessions. We're going to walk with him in this devout intimacy. And the idea is that we're going to continue to bring order. The problem is the fall kind of sets in, sin enters the picture, the spiritual beings are running rampant and causing men to fall over and over and over, and that creates this downward trajectory. And at the cross, something happens where victory is won, binds the spirits, and that's going to start the upward trajectory where things are being regained, reclaimed. Um, this order is going to come in. We are now living temples, Christ inside of us, amazing image bearers, ambassadors. We kind of become micro examples of what God is on an infinite scale, that we are the micro version of Jesus to the rest of the world. And like you alluded to, they should be looking at that and going, yeah. what do we got to do to get part of yeah, this? Reclaiming what was lost inside of, like reclaiming Eden, basically, like yeah. bringing Eden, but through the church, 
rather than transforming things outside the church. Let the church expand. You know? Yeah. And so many of these dispensational problems are things that we've like identified and looked at and said like that just, I don't know where you get this futurism, escapism, pie in the sky thinking, where that all came from. But all those things are kind of laced in dispensationalism, and that's what we're going to talk about today is how that's actually pulled the church further from Jesus, almost back on the opposite trajectory yeah. rather than to yeah. put us on the trajectory that we should be. Yeah, so we're going to start with a little bit of theology right now um, of some of the issues that we see with it and then get into, like I said, our back porch campfire conversation around some of the stuff. So. What is dispensationalism and what are the issues is kind of the thing. So dispensationalism, um, if you don't really know what, what that word is, it, it divides out um, different periods of time throughout history and the way God interacts with his creation within those. And we see from the Old Testament to the New Testament, yes, there are, there are covenants given, there are changes that sometimes happen, but we see that a lot of those things connect, yeah. not that God deals with Adam and Eve in a certain way, and then Abraham in a certain way, and then Israel in a certain way, and then the church in a certain way, and then end times in a certain way. It's a construct of man to kind of like... It's like God changes his mind every couple years <laughs> right. of how and he so, deals with people. So God's going to do this now, we got to wait for that, you know, even though this, you know, might say giftings is one that comes yeah. into this. And so even though the giftings of the first century or the first church is there, those are going to stop. They're no There's longer going to be used. Yeah, new dispensation. Don't don't think about change. it that way. <laughs> and we like to see things differently. From the, God is consistent. From the pages of the Old Testament all the way to the last two chapters of Revelation, there's no change in the way that God is going to talk to his people and the way that God's character is going to work and the way that, that he establishes his kingdom and asks us to work through there. Obviously, when Christ comes, there's going to be one central change in that, and mm -hmm. that's the two trajectories going different ways. But from the before and after of that, the message doesn't change, the way it works doesn't mm -hmm. change. It's still Christ bringing the revelation to the way that everything happened in the Old yeah, Testament. comes the yes and amen. <laughs> so, um, and the all in all. So, dispensationalism, kind of the first thing that I see is that it promotes escapism. Yeah. And so, which I believe really hinders discipleship in the present because the goal is actually to get saved and escape this earth or to be raptured away or to right. go to the heaven, pie in the sky, disembodied, Gnostic <laughs> dualism state yeah. type thing. And it's really interesting, the Old Testament, they, they didn't even have this concept of like heaven or rapture or anything like that. They had an idea that, you know, and actually their idea was prefaced on the world's idea of yeah. it, of, of that there was some kind of like afterlife and maybe if you you know, lived the, like the pharaohs, for instance, would think mm -hmm. that they would go on to an afterlife or something like that. But that's not what the everyday person yep. was living for. They were living right there that they might be faithful, honoring God in their life. And, you know, this is why the retribution principle was such a big topic of the Old Testament was what would God continue to bless you physically on earth mm -hmm. if you honored him. And in the New Testament, we kind of continue that wrong way of thinking sometimes today when it really by the time the new testament gets there if you're reading the old testament correctly you should already know that we're not going that way yeah. yet people still seem to struggle and stumble with it and so like my thought is if christ's goal is for his body on earth to be like him then why would he want us to escape the earth if he we're supposed to right. take on his pattern yeah right? and so what was the pattern of christ that suffering led to victory yeah not that escaping this world is the victory right and it's so, funny how these seven letters go hand in hand with yeah, that message yeah, yeah so they're called to endure not escape and so this actually through the endurance and coming through times of trials and testings actually builds our faith and builds our discipleship um, when we do that and face it as a community together, brothers and sisters, iron sharpening iron, but when you're taken out of this world as the dispensational thing, to, I'm like, it totally ignores the entire patterns of God's people throughout the entire Bible. Yeah. Now, the next point is whether you realize this or not, but the great tribulational thinking that there will be one tribulation that everybody's may or may not, this goes into pre-trib, post-trib. Mm -hmm. So those words, pre-trib, post-trib, mid-trib, those are all dispensational 
words that kind of describe when this great tribulation will happen. And if you watch any of our videos, we allude to this all the time, saying that it's not one central tribulation. We're all living through times of yeah. tribulation. In, in this world, world, you have face trials. <laughs> you have face trials, and you look at China right now, and they're in tribulation. You look at all of history for the last 2,000 years, and at any point, you could probably find a timeline, point your picture to, point your finger on the picture of what's happening in humanity, and go, somebody there is experiencing the tribulation that the Bible talks about. So it's not a central, huge tribulation, great tribulation. It's speak, simply speaking to the fact that we're all going to have tribulations if we're walking right with the Lord. Yeah, and so in dispensational thinking, like the staunch dispensationalists, would say to see these seven churches as ages from the time Jesus ascends into heaven up till this great tribulation. And this actually stunts the message that Jesus has to these churches that we've gone does, through yeah. because it applies these messages to other ages yep. and not for the church today. And so they can't, you know, see the application as in, you know, the Bible... We believe the Bible wasn't written to us, but it was written for us. It right. was written to these seven churches that were actually in the first century. We're actually churches. Yeah. We're actually in the Roman Empire. But we can take these messages and see, all right, what was Jesus' ideals and how they should relate to imperial powers, to religious powers, to the world, yeah. and follow the same footsteps. So we're going to continue to talk about this on a more philosophical level. But basically, what, what Matt is describing here is that dispensationalism kind of gives the okay of somebody to say, oh, that part of the Bible isn't to me. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, I, there's nothing in there for me. That's for when we get to this level, then that's going to apply. Where we see the whole book of Revelation, we, we, we can apply yeah. it to our lives today. We can get, we can take it away. We can get something. So even though it wasn't written to us, the seven churches were actual churches that were written to. It is written in a way that we can glean things out of it for yeah, us. Which is harder in the dispensational interpretation. Even um, I've been teaching through our seven church series at, at my church and we, I kind of did the introduction to it this past week and I kind of opened up the question, what do you guys think Revelation is about? And pretty much everybody is like, well, um, we don't really know what to do with like the seven churches, but we believe that somewhere around like Revelation chapter four, the church gets raptured out and the rest of this is about some end times Jewish thing. And, and that's so if the, someone said, I don't even know if the end of uh, all the way up to the end of Revelation, that middle part is even for the church. It's for, it's to warn people in the world. And I'm yeah. like, all right, well that gets into like, how can you apply that to your discipleship if right. it's not written to you, right? <laughs> you know, or for you? And it's like you get out a jail-free card. This part of the Bible you don't need to read yeah. or something. That's yeah. just for the last Picking seven days of the world. Yeah. So, yeah. so we, we worked through some of that. Um, but one of the things we did talk about, because we were talking about the whole Jewish and church relation, that was the 144,000. Yeah. And some people, like you and Scott, like saw the 144,000 as actual Jews in the Great Tribulation. Yeah, that's and, a very common take. Yeah, right? and so we saw as we went through this, we did an interpretation in one of our episodes on Revelation 7, and that is the things of John seeing and John hearing. Yeah. So what John hears often, like remember he hears oh, the Lion of Judah, but he sees a slaughtered lamb. Yeah. That's the interpretation of it. Yeah. And he hears this military census of 144,000 right. Jews, but he sees every tribe, tongue, and nation yep. worshiping around the throne. Yep. And so... It changes the whole picture of Revelation that they see that this is some end-time Jewish army when it's actually the church's way of doing battle as the true people of God is worshiping the Lamb. And it's really interesting <laughs> that a lot of times people are going to take the 144,000 as a post-group. So the rapture happens in dispensational thinking. Mm -hmm. Then you have 144,000 faithful left. Most uh -huh. people say those are... Jews going back. So this is a dispensational era. So it started with the mm -hmm. message to the church, to the Jews, and it's going to end with the Jews kind of going mm -hmm. there. So there's some covenant theology yeah. coming into play and things like that. And we don't see it that way. No. We, we see 144,000 and there's actually a play on Expedition 44 with this, yeah. that the 144,000 are just the remnant, the, the faithful, faithful, all yeah. those that continue to stand. So, you know, right now, could I be considered 144,000 because I'm one of the faithful mm -hmm. remnant people uh, still wanting to live as a completely devoted disciple for the Lord, not entangled or torn with the world, but 
all into the kingdom of Jesus. That's a better description of what the 144,000 is. And that's the Expedition 44 play on the word too, is that's what we're called to be. Now, if I take that and I put it dispensationally way off that we're not even part of that, you completely miss the message. Yeah, it's not about being a faithful remnant. It's about, all right, let's escape so this other faithful remnant in the future can come to be. (laughs) And so it removes all the onus on us to actually live this way. Um, So kind of last thing, I think the major thrust of futurism um, is the futurists, like their view of prophecy, Nostradamus, and we'll get more into that when we kind of get into our philosophical thing. But, and we addressed this in part of our episodes that the view of prophecy simply as predicting the future really has no bearing then to us on the present we're just it's just always something that we're just watching for yeah you know it's it, it doesn't require any action on the part of the church besides just sitting back and watching exactly <laughs> yeah so when you look at the old testament understanding of prophecy what it was it wasn't this crystal ball thinking that no. we've made it out to be it was it was um kind of a snapshot we talk about picture language mosaics yeah. mm-hmm. it was a snapshot of where you're at in order that you might see to bring yourself into a better picture of communal relation with God. And so even in the Old Testament, the majority of times when things even do get crystal ballish, and I'm going to say there aren't very many examples of that in the Old Testament, but one of them I'll give you is Jonah. And I don't know if you've really ever dove into the story of Jonah. I'd I'd love us to do a minor prophets section. But you get into Jonah and people misread Jonah all the time and that, you know, Jonah is supposed to take this message to Nineveh and the message is, you know, to essentially repent, come back to Jesus, which they take steps towards that. And and Jonah gets mad, you know, because he says, you said you were going to destroy them. I want you to destroy them. And that's not the character of God. When we, when you read it that way, you're reading the wrong message into it. What God is saying is grace, love, and mercy. Yeah. The message is there so that it actually might never happen. Yeah. And so this kind of plays into how the dispensationalists interpret the churches. So let's look at that. So how does, we've already gone through and we've given our interpretation of the message to the actual seven churches and what it's supposed to mean. A lot of times in dispensationalism, like they so much don't, this is so confusing and contorting that most dispensationals don't even look at these churches as seven actual churches. And I've even heard some dispensationalist messages sometimes even go as far as to say, oh, the church has never actually existed. It was figurative or metaphorical. Mm -hmm. And I just kind of laugh because there's so much information on the actual seven churches, but they're going to break these up into kind of different eras or different ages. So let's just talk for a second about what dispensationalism does with these seven churches. Yeah, so this um, interpretation that we're going to put forward um, was originally found about 1909 in the Schofield Reference Bible. Yeah, I've got one of these at home. So this is the first time we see it show up, really. You open it up in a Schofield Study Bible and you can actually read about the dispensations. And this is one of the things that it's really done well in that it paints a picture as if this is the truth. There's no other interpretation. If you know the Bible or know prophecy, this is what it looks like. And theologically, I have a major problem with any Bible that just says this, this is, and this is kind of my book, this is the way of saying like, we've been told what to think for so long that we've totally forgotten how to live as an intimate disciple and bathe everything in the spirit of interpretation and dive into knowing the knowledge of the Bible and the Word, which leads to a knowledge and relationship with Jesus. So here's the way that uh, Schofield and actually like commentaries on Revelation, like Hal Lindsey's, um, there's a new world coming in Tim LaHaye's Revelation Unveiled, which were written in the, those last two were in the 70s and uh, 1970s, 1990s. Yeah, and the late great planet Earth was yeah, kind of the one that kind one, of started. Yeah. That was actually written in 1974 when I was born. And I, boy, growing up when I was five, six years old, that was, I don't know if you guys are old enough to remember that, but that was the rage of that. Time. Yeah. So they would say Ephesus represents the Apostolic Church, um, which is about 100 to 150 AD. Uh, Smyrna represented what was called the Persecuted Church, uh, 100 all the way up to Constantine, yep. 312. This Pergamum was what they call the Compromised Church, which is when the Empire favored the church. So starting with Constantine all the way up to 606, which was the election of Pope Boniface X. Yep. Um, 
Then you got Thyatira, which they say is a worldly, lax, the medieval church, so 606 up to about the Protestant Reformation, they call yeah. that. So what they're doing is they're taking the messages and they're applying it to that age. And so it was it was an interpretation as if the Bible was written prophetically, so to speak. Like the church is going to look like this in this age, and then this in this age, and then this. And so when we get there, so here's the, end the, of the message world is. for you. <laughs> so, <Yeah. laughs> so, like if you see your church looking like Laodicea, it's close to the end. Exactly. <laughs> type thing. Instead of taking all the messages and using it as a touchstone yep. against what we should measure our churches as. Yeah. Um, all right. So then we just did Thyatira Sardis is the Reformation churches 517 forward. Philadelphia is what they call the true church loved by Christ. Um, the missionary activity of like 1750 up to like the 20th century. Um, yep. So they call that kind of like the golden age. So of, where are we today? It they would, would say like... Laodicea is 1900 all the way up to whenever the Great Tribulation starts. So this is the problem. As you talk to a different dispensational person, they're not sure where we are. Yeah. Like, are we finishing with Sardis right now? Are we kind of in Philadelphia, you know? Does that kind of, they most people kind of frame that up to the rapture, and so like we're kind of in there, but then what do you do with Laodicea? That's also kind of 1900 yeah. to the rapture. So it puts these last three as in, we don't really know. We yeah. might be in all of them, and if that's a red flag off the top yeah. of the head. Like it, it you know. If, Mormon actually talks about this in reading Revelation responsibly. Uh, he, he does a whole section here on the churches, and he gives a couple reasons why he doesn't think it, it, he thinks this is a crazy he, he interpretation. He calls it creative. <laughs> so, creative's a good word. Yeah. So he says, like Gorman. Yeah, Re good, Revelation, yeah. he says, gives no hint of interest or in the knowledge of specific eras of the church. Yeah. On the contrary, he says the context of chapters 2 and 3 of Revelation mention that it's actually, actually the actual content of those are not to future churches, but to actual first century churches yep. dealing with first century problems. Yeah. Um, then he goes after that, uh, the second thing is perhaps most important that this kind of scheme uncritically looks at the perspective of the, reflects on the perspective of very conservative and very American Protestantism. Yeah, he very says American. That, yeah. He says that it frames the whole church by only looking at the European and the American church and ignores the church and the whole rest of the world and what it's going through during these same times. And I'll kind of get to this later, but the funny thing about this is it's kind of trying to write into it where America is, as mm -hmm. if America is the central theme of the, the Bible. Bible. Yeah. yeah. So where is it? And then you get into this crazy Gog, Magog, Russian, Bear, China stuff, yeah. all to try to fit America into the central pages of the Bible, and I'm sorry, but it doesn't work that way. It's yeah. not there. Yeah, and so he ends with saying, Revelation 2 and 3 is too theologically rich to deserve such irresponsible misreadings. Sounds harsh, but very, very true. Very true. Yeah, so that kind of, that was from uh, Michael Gorman's book, Reading Revelation Responsibly, Uncivil Worship and Witness, Following the Lamb into New Creation. Love the title. That kind of completes the very theological part of it. And like I said, we, we struggle with even calling this theological because it's just so... The normal way that Matt and I interpret the Bible in exegetical style, this just isn't here. There's nowhere to do an exegetical style of this, of, of dispensationalism. And that's the reason why we have such an issue with it because you can't do an exegesis yeah, it, of it. <laughs> yeah, it, it goes against and defies all the laws of biblical interpretation pretty much. And because of that, the people that have written the books on dispensationalism, Matt and I really wouldn't consider biblical scholars. I mean, yeah. none of them. There's not one that's a dispensational person that I would say, well, they're off here, but the rest of their theology on this, I wouldn't even consider him a theologian. And so when you get into the area of scholarly works, and we mentioned Gorman because he's one of my favorites, and Boyd, who's a Princeton PhD, and I could keep going on and on and on, none of them are going to land here. If there is one, I don't know of who it is. And so um, you might remember in the early to mid-2000s, Moody Bible Institute, the dispensational you know, seminary of the world, had a real falling out because basically a ton of their theology professors said, we're at a school that holds to dispensationalism, and essentially none of us hold to dispensationalism. And that's a yeah. problem. And that was the mass exodus of we better, we better 
we better find a new home, so yeah. to speak. And unfortunately, Moody's kind of lost the idea that they are a seminary now. Most people just refer to them as a Bible college or, you know, a small training place. What was once considered this, you know, major training seminary of the world, unfortunately, because I have a degree from there, it doesn't really have that reputation. When I went there, it was called the Harvard of the Bible colleges, and they've kind of lost that. And I'm going to say, primarily because they've decided to hold to dispensationalism. So let's get into kind of more of uh, our back porch uh, campfire discussion on some of some of these things and um, pointing out probably three or four major problems. We'll work through these pretty quickly as we start to wrap up here of some issues that we see continued here. So a lot of these are are grounded on what we've already mentioned. So we've kind of done the 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 albeit theological look at it. Now we're going to get a little more philosophical and just having a discussion as if as if I was kind of trying to talk you out of dispensationalism. The reason the in my, <laughs> my mind, my head, it just doesn't work within the pages of the scripture, but also logic, rationale, what mm-hmm. the issues with it. So the, the first one is, is, you know, Gorman identifies this, but but I identify it as the crystal ball problem of, of seeing this thing happening as unfolding prophetically around you. And it's just a really poor way of interpreting revelation. It's it's what I'm going to say is the opposite of the biblical in, intention and a biblical, what biblical prophecy was. Yeah, um, we see that there's a whole lot of this that, and we'll see that the crystal ball interpretation is it's very much a thing of American culture more yeah. than more than anything. We get like books like Thief in the Night and the Left Behind series and things like that. They're trying. They're very like it's cultural for Americans to think that Revelation is this un, unfolding. Yeah. You know, looking at a crystal ball, telling future events, and often they concentrate more on the what's happening in the news than actually what the Bible's trying to say. It's interesting that a lot of this writing was early 90, 1900s, like the mm-hmm. Schofield Study oh, Bible, yeah. but, but people didn't really like buy into it or give it any merit until the 1950s, 60s, and it exploded in the 70s. And so, and only in America. Right, I mean, they got right. the ones who introduced it in Europe were laughed out of Europe, and yeah. they had to come to America to <laughs> do it. <laughs> and so one thing I want to point out is that this has only been around, really, in mainstream for 50 years. I mean, it's... It's, it's very new doctrine. Very new doctrine. And I mean, if you would have, if we could get in our time machine and go back to the early church, or even, you know, 1506, even during the time of the Reformation, and describe something like this, people would have thought you were totally nuts because it would have been nowhere in the scripture. I remember Steve Gregg telling this story um, about, I think it was from Tim LaHaye's class when he was teaching on Revelation. He made a claim, it's either him or one of the his co-professors, I think it was from Dallas Theological Seminary, made a claim that all of the early church, you can find dispensationalism in, in the early church fathers. And this kid decided to write his master's thesis on cross-examining that. This kid was a dispensationalist. And he went through all <laughs> the, the evidence. <laughs> and he actually, like, based on that phrase, and he went through all the evidence and that. And he found that not a single early church father up to, um, if you look at the first 500 years of Christianity, yeah. had agreed on any of the core beliefs of dispensationalism. Yeah. Not a single one. Right. So he basically said that 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 concept of the early church believing it is actually basically progressive revelation and not actually wasn't taught at all in the first 500 years of Christianity. So just because the early church didn't know it or didn't believe it that way doesn't make it wrong, but it is an indicator that that the apostles didn't teach their disciples that. (laughs) Yeah, and that it wasn't anywhere in Jesus's radar. And Mm -hmm. so that brings me to the next thing that when it does come to part, it brings all of this doom and gloom thinking. And so the whole idea of dispensationalism is that there's going to be this great tribulation and whether you're pre, post, you know, whatever, you may be part of it or you may not be part of it. But it's this, I remember when I was young, people talking about, man, should we have kids right now to bring them into the tribulation age or not, you know? And so I knew people that like literally decided not to have children, God's huge gift to us, because they didn't want to bring them into a doom and gloom tribulation world, Armageddon, blood red moon stories, things like that. Yeah. 
Yeah. It's kind of what I would associate with uh, in the 1950s when UFOs became this big thing and you'd see people in their living room when their TVs with tinfoil on their head. Want their brains red. <laughs> at the time, it seemed logical, but now we look back at it and like we look back at people having tinfoil on their head and just laugh at it thinking like, were people that stupid, you know? And I hate to say it, but in my mind, that's about the place dispensationalism and the doom and gloom Armageddon thinking falls, is that I really think in 200 years we're going to look back and, you know, everybody's going to go, oh, yeah, remember yeah. that? <laughs> I think I sent you a meme the other day. It was this punch card of how many... Um end of the world predictions you've lived through <laughs> right <laughs> when you get seven you get one free <laughs> so, yeah. yeah so we we continually try to encourage listeners to take a more biblical view on things and again i just want to come back to it's really hard to see a theological view for dispensationalism within the bible if you had never heard anything about the bible and i sat you in my garage and i handed you the bible and i said all right read the, the whole new testament cover to cover and then i sat down and told you the story of dispensationalism you would be staring at me like where did you get that that wasn't what i just read in in any way and so again part of this is you know Hal Lindsey or you know movies that came out kind mm -hmm. of you know clouded in that and things like that Thief in the Night, you might yeah. remember Keith Green's, you remember, I called it the scary song yeah. when I was a what, little bit. Yeah, I wish you'd all been ready or something like <laughs> yeah. that. Yeah. People trampled on the floor and all this kind of stuff. And, you know, it, it gave way, and we still see this today, to the altar call revolution. I mean, the, the hell, eternal conscious torment way of, you know, I, I call this scaring the hell out of people so that mm -hmm. they would miss the tribulation. They would yeah. escape the tribulation. And it mm -hmm. all goes back to poor dispensational thinking and then you also have into this the the antichrist thing of like you know you you everybody better know jesus or you know there's going to be a problem when this antichrist thing comes and in in my life it's really is barack obama or putin or donald trump it's everybody's trying to figure out their crystal ball who is the antichrist going to be and mm -hmm. you know sometimes people call that you know epileptic fever yeah, yeah yeah there you go yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, people just get obsessed with these type of things, and when you focus on all of this doom and gloom, end of the world type of stuff, it hinders you actually living as a disciple. Yeah. When we're supposed to be bringing the peace of Jesus to the earth, we're supposed to be bringing his joy, his love to those around us, instead we're scaring the hell out of people. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> so, yeah. Well, the church is not uh, a, a beacon of light, it's actually a beacon of darkness. So you hear me talk about um, opposites all the time, about how things in the Bible kind of have a, a double meaning, mm -hmm. that they can mean an extreme for one thing, an extreme for the other, and it's the same word used for that. And when we get to this dispensational thinking, one of my biggest problems with it is I truly believe that it's accomplishing the polar opposites of what Christ says to do. And mm -hmm. so um, one of the ways that this is, and this is why I really like the terminology, I don't know who came up with the crystal ball terminology. It's very mm -hmm. prevalent in a lot of you know people that think this way, yeah. anti-dispensationalism, you'll hear it a lot. But it's a good way to describe it because it describes divination. Yeah. It describes you know, trying to foresee into the future. And even you go back into the Old Testament and we get this crazy story of Samuel going back, but it's this back and forth communicating with people in the past, communicating with people in the, in the front, trying to see it. Why would I want to see the future? And I'm going to get more into this later, but it's, it's not the description of who we're called to be. It's the description of what the world is doing and what we're supposed to stay away from, I run talks for. against that. <laughs> yeah. So you get back into this raptured idea and this, as Matt alluded to, like this isn't the life in Christ. This is mm -hmm. this escapist thing of in order to have joy, we need to escape the world where over and over in the New Testament, we're told that like we need to live through that and actually through the tribulations that each one of us should expect to go through and maybe even as much as martyr, that the result of that are pockets of joy that C.S. Lewis would describe as kind of pictures of what we're going to be when we get to the eternal, new, newly created heavens and earth and things like that. But it's also what we're experiencing right here, right now at the same time. Yeah, um, a lot of this, I think, comes down to and it points to why Westerners created this yeah. doctrine is we're so into our comfort. Yeah, we we're so into ourselves. Into too. ourselves. It yeah. makes it completely individualistic. But 
but the comfort thing is huge. We don't want to face anything that's uncomfortable. So yeah. we have this mindset of, oh, well, let's create this doctrine where we get sucked out of the earth before things go bad. <laughs> yeah. Instead of like, how can the people of God, the remnant, the 144,000, right, right. be the light in times of trials and tribulations by walking with the lamb and doing, following the pattern of Christ where his suffering led to victory. We don't get that. Like rapture theology is completely the opposite. Yeah. And, and it, the Bible over and over talks about the humility that, mm -hmm. that we're supposed to live as a picture of little Christ, so mm -hmm. to speak, humble all the way to the cross. And the whole idea of dispensationalism is essentially trying to find out where America fits into this, you know, and like the rest of the world is like laughing at America going, it just doesn't make sense. One, you know, mm -hmm. you don't really fit into it. Like we're all the body of Christ throughout all the thousands of years or whatever, this is what it looks like. Mm -hmm. And so many times when I think of like the Hollywood version of escapism, rapture, tribulation, all this kind of stuff, like it might be on bestsellers list and sold millions of copies and it might actually be what you think the Bible says, but I hate to break it to you. It's just a horrible rendition of what Revelation says. Yeah, and then that gets into like conspiracy theories yeah. and that and like people are made fun of for this all the time and it comes from being trained in this type of thinking yeah. is that everything is pointing to like this future antichrist and the, the mark of the beast and where's the ten-headed beast, beast and are they the European the Union, Union or yeah. whatever I remember when the first computer I'm really dating myself the first computer came out <laughs> I had a TI Texas Instruments I think it was oh I don't remember 994A or something like that and I had a flight simulator on it and I could not wait to get on the my grandpa set me up to teach me how to fly when I was like nine years old and I remember my dad walking into the room going ah, the mark of the beast is in our house type of thing, you know? And then like the Casio wristwatches came out and like, oh boy, that was bad. That was the mark on your hand or the wrist or whatever, you know? products. Oh, cell phones now. What about the vaccine? I mean, it just keeps going and going. And these are all conspiracy type theories based on a poor interpretation of dispensationalism and revelation. Yeah, we look back on those other things that look like we're laughing at those now. And the things that we think now, like the vaccine or some microchip from Bill Gates or whatever, yeah. in 10, 15 years, we're going to be like laughing at that as well because of poor dispensational teaching on these yeah. these things in the Bible. So there's, there's all this stuff that we've described, but there's even deeper problems that I alluded to. I mentioned divination, but before I get to divination, I, I want to just say that the main problem that Matt and I have with this goes back to where we started with exegetical problems in that one of the main things we we are both uh, involved with Covenant Theological Seminary as you probably see a bar down here and all of our videos go these sometimes are course coursework that students have to watch to go through it and things like that and part of this is that we teach from day one of your experience and we hope when you leave this is one of the major core values that you get is not to read your what you want into the text, not to take text and to turn it to say something that you want to communicate to your church body or the people you know listening to your message, that that's the opposite of what you're supposed to be doing. You're mm -hmm. supposed to be taking the text, reading it, and then taking that and applying exactly what the text says to everybody's life. This isn't something that you can bend to use the way that you want. And unfortunately, boy, I got to be careful when I say this, but the great American church is actually better at proof texting, reading what they want the Bible mm -hmm. to say than they are at exegetically drawing out the message of the Bible for them. And that is really my major hang up with dispensationalism. Yeah. And the one major thing that besides the rapture stuff and the antichrist, future antichrist type thing is like the whole picture of distorting Jesus. What they do with Jesus. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and that, and that, Who they want Jesus to be. And that really upsets me. <laughs> they, they make Jesus coming back on a white horse, carrying a sword, slaying all his enemies. Right, right. He's coming back to kick some butt, but, Jesus. Yeah, yeah. I mean, who is that? Mark Driscoll yeah. said that Jesus is coming back on a, on a war horse, ready to kick some butt and has a tattoo down his leg and that that's um that's a a, a jesus i can worship not some yeah. peace loving hippie diaper wearing jesus that that's 
basically a summary, a paraphrase of a quote from Mark Driscoll. I'm like, it's a totally awful way to read the text. Jesus comes back on a horse, the sword's in his mouth, and he's covered in his own blood. Right, right. I'm like, how do you get that out of that? So this is exactly what was happening, the John the Baptist kind of thinking, is that they wanted Jesus to come in and obliterate Rome, and in their own earthly minds, they wanted to set up a new empirical yeah. empire where Jesus was sitting on the throne and they were all high-ranking officials under him. And Jesus comes and does what? The exact opposite yeah, of that. Yeah, he said, if you want to be great in the kingdom, become a slave. So, <laughs> so if that's what Jesus did the first time, do you really think the second coming is now going to be totally the opposite yeah. of that? I mean, even he came the first time in a way no one expected him. I'm pretty sure it's going to be the same thing the next time yeah. he comes. Yep, <laughs> in exactly. a way no one he expects it. So the Bible is, when we get this story, it's it's not changing mm -hmm. through the pages like dispensationalism would want it to do, would yeah. read into the text. That's why they have to create these dispensations to make a square peg fit into a round hole. It's consistent. <laughs> and so the way that Christ came back the first time, it's not going to be totally opposite of that. It's going to be a picture of something exactly the same. Yep. And so... You kind of got to get that in your head because you get the whole message just so messed up if you're if you're changing the yeah. story. So this brings us back to our church series. So how do we how do we frame this Ryan for we've seen how bad interpretations of revelation put the church on a trajectory of not living out discipleship. Right. When you get the correct interpretations when you when you're consistent in the way that you interpret yeah. the Bible, it really shows you how to walk that path. So what happens as a result of dispensationalism, and we've alluded to this, it's left the American church right now essentially wanting to escape, thinking that we're going to, you know, do everything later, that Christ is going to come back and kick butt, so to speak. It paints a terrible picture, the opposite of what the Bible says. Now when you read the seven messages, the way that we've presented them, it sets the tone to a better church. What mm -hmm. should church look like today? And it's way more consistent with the message of the synoptics and the Old Testament and the last two chapters of Revelation for that fact. Yeah, and the picture of Israel all through the yeah. Old Testament as well, what God's ideal intention was for them to be his called out people. But the reason why we get here is because it's a much better exegesis. It's mm -hmm. It's taking what the Bible gives us and simply reading it and following the message inside of it, making application mm -hmm. from what it says, rather than reading into something that probably had no intentions or wasn't there, wasn't the message originally intended to the culture, yeah. and therefore can't be the message that we try to draw out of it or, or make up today. And so from here... What we're doing is we're saying if this was the checkup call for the seven churches, what picture does that paint and what descriptions do we have for where we're going? And I just want to kind of, you know, to, to preface that, I kind of want to get back to the problem of the divination thing again. I don't want to leave that because this is really important in tying in the problem with dispensationalism and what we're supposed to be doing. And so Jesus says no one knows the time, the hour, yeah, yeah. you know, do the birds worry, you know, just live for me. What's the message that all that says? It says don't don't try to depict when the end's going to happen. <laughs> just simply live as followers, live as disciples of Jesus. Grow in your discipleship by lo loving God with all your heart and loving your neighbor as yourself in the here and now and grow in that tomorrow. Like, keep growing in it. Yeah. And so if you look at whether it's the Old Testament or the New Testament or, you know, in the Old Testament, there's those that walked faithfully. Mm -hmm. In the New Testament, there's those that are purely disciples. They check everything on the beach. They wholeheartedly every day walk with Christ, literally. All of those things are are fitting the definition of completely relying on the Lord for everything. What divination does, tied to dispensationalism, is it's trying to foresee the future. What it what it would be like is when you were a kid and you always dreamed of getting in a time machine and being able to go see the future and then come back and live right then, your idea as a kid was always like, I would bring a newspaper back so I could like place a bet on a race and get rich, <laughs> you know? Yeah, and like I would be the most powerful, wealthy person ever, you know? And like that is horrible 
thinking in terms of the Bible. The Bible speaks exactly the opposite. Don't try to know the future. Don't try to have power over things. You don't need riches or money or any of that stuff. So if you're in crystal ball thinking, that's divination. It's the exact opposite of what Jesus says of just completely live today for me, rejoicing, going through tribulations as you're able to smile because you're walking with me. I think that that whole thing is trusting in ourselves rather than trusting in God. The whole thing you just talked about is why worry you? Like, do the, do the birds worry? Right. And that is like Jesus is trying to teach his disciples in the Sermon on the Mount, which are our marching orders, yeah. that the whole point of this is like, live this way, develop this character, reflect reflect the kingdom through the way that you see me living, and simply trust God today. Yeah, Trust him for everything. Don't be worried about the future. Right. right. And the other hang-up is what dispensationalism does is it kind of creates this idea of power over everything. Mm -hmm. And so it becomes all about you. You mentioned the meistic part of it of, you know, everything points to Western America. And it, it's becomes about you and less about God. You're looking for your position rather the position of Lord over mm -hmm. everything as a sovereign God. Yeah, and I think when we talk also about like not trusting God for our future, like I just said, and it, it, it completely hinges on the what a lot of dispensationalists see as the primary message of the Bible is about escaping, which is what they tie into salvation, escaping to heaven, yeah. escaping uh, the escaping hell, escaping yeah. this instead of discipleship. They concentrate so much on what they're saved from that they never, like, they rarely give the, the time of day to what they're saved yeah. for. Yeah. So it's a, it's a fundamental mistrust of the Lord. You mm -hmm. know, you're, you're trying to build the trust in your own self and, you know, uh, you're, you're essentially wanting to become the God mm -hmm. rather than to completely trust in the Lord. And so these are all problems. Our mission is to be passionate disciples, living in the present, growing deeper in our intimacy every day in our relationship, our walk with the Lord, be surrounded by a communal body of believers that think the same way, tribal language, help us do what we can't do on our own. They're the, Being a royal priesthood. The toes, the yeah. feet, you know. Yeah. And that we're supposed to bring others into that walk with us. And I, I just have to say, like, the whole picture of dispensationalism, like, it's the opposite of that. Mm -hmm. It doesn't reflect the pages of the Bible. So as as scholars that look to interpret what the Bible says ex exegetically, there just doesn't seem to be anywhere to put dispensationalism there. No. It doesn't fit. And so... What do we do with this? Where are we at? Our focus should be on completely living for Jesus right here, right now. Like, I look forward to a newly created heavens and earth, but I also look forward to today and mm -hmm. tomorrow and what I can do to find that joy in Jesus. Because I got to say, what it looks like here now for you as a Christian is probably what it's going to look like in a recreated heaven and earth. Yeah. How good are you doing there? Yeah. I mean, yeah. the whole thing with the churches, our churches are supposed to be little cells of the new creation. Yeah. And we were talking about this when we had the conversation with, um, with Dr. Steve Castle as uh, making the church so beautiful because yeah. the church really should be that slice of heaven yeah. on earth and bring heaven to earth. Right. So right now, what does it look like the church? And this is where we're going mm -hmm. is the church should look like God loves us with an everlasting love. The, if you accept that, you're accepting what's important to you, that the this first, you know, messages of the seven churches are that God loves you, we should love each other, we should love the world, and that should be exuding out of us. Yeah, and the next thing is right now, God wants us to keep growing as disciples, and so our focus needs to be on discipleship and cooperating with him and his spirit, and that's the important focus for yeah. the church rather than escaping the world. And, and we want to live that way to spread the kingdom, to impact the whole world. Like, a, you know, one of my heartfelt concerns is, it, we alluded to this earlier, is that the church is doing a terrible job with the rest of the world. Like, mm -hmm. we're relying on the government to take care of people. And, you know, we just, even though that's a preeminent call to, you know, the, the, the meek, the poor, the needy, you mm -hmm. know, everything like that, like, we don't really do that right now. And that's it's one of the preeminent calls of the church. And yeah, and God can use people, and I believe he is calling people out to do that, uh, calling people to go out of their way to live in extreme loving and extraordinary ways to serve other people. And if you're not present in that, if your focus is 
on something else, like the future and escaping, right, right. you're going to miss what's right in front of you. And yeah. Jesus wants us to live in the present yeah. so that we can serve one another. God wants to use us right now. And so oftentimes our churches, and this is where we're going, is our churches like kind of present this as what ministry do you want to serve in? What do you want to sign up for? You know, we've, mm-hmm. we got a sign up sheet going around, like, you know, put your gifting in this box over here. And when God is saying, oh, your gifting is so much more dynamic than that. Why don't mm-hmm. you quit your 50 hour a week job and go serve others and yeah. love others and, you know, show the love of Christ mm-hmm. to everybody that you're in. And right now that they're, they're um, the enemy really wants to have us, not love one another. Yeah. He <laughs> wants to fight. He yeah. wants us to fight. And so in the church, God is really calling us to forgive. He's calling us to love. He He wants, the enemy wants us to fight over our divisions. So what he does wants it, this unity. What does it look like when the church stands up and they say, join the fight today, you know, da 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 stand firm, stand strong, we're going to war, da 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 Yeah. Don't No, I think it's like, we, we say it over and over that if the church can look absolutely beautiful to the world, it's going to save the world. Yeah. <laughs> There's this... Can you win them over if you obliterate them? Yeah. If you annihilate them? No. <laughs> no. I mean, the church needs to be Jesus. The way that Jesus won people was through his extraordinary love. Yes, he did say harsh things to the scribes and the Pharisees and, and the political and religious leaders out of the abuses they had. So there is a time to stand up and speak the truth. But you saw that 99% of Jesus's ministry was actually having compassion on the hurting and the broken and bringing restoration. Yeah. The other thing is there are so many hungry people out there. And like, again, like, I don't want to come off as negative. You know, the church isn't doing this, the church isn't. Because where we're going is we want to paint a picture to challenge the church to do better. And that's... There's a lot the church does well. We just yeah. want to, we want to see the churches take this, like, step it up, you know? Yeah. And so some churches do do better jobs than others of feeding the hungry. Our church, for instance, has a food pantry and it's busy mm-hmm. all the time. But is that necessarily the call? So in our, in our in our perspective, in most churches' perspective, a food pantry might function once a week or something like that. The, the idea, you know, I think of when I think of first century church is this idea of, you know, more bringing people into your, your home, house, clothing yeah. them, giving yeah. them food. And, you know, in a, in a culture like this, you know, Pretty much everybody I know has food and clothes and stuff like that, but it's still a, an imminent need. I mean, there's, this is mm-hmm. happening all over the place, and what does it look like? Yeah, and it's also providing shelter for people and and just simply caring for yeah. for them in, yeah. in tangible ways. The church can be the hands and feet of Jesus. And we said th- these are the things that we think the church needs to focus on rather than, than escaping. <laughs> yeah, and I, I think a lot of it is, particularly in the Old Testament, you get this this kind of verbiage in Eden and then later in the temple that things are supposed to be beautiful that represent the Lord. And a lot of times we might think of just feeding people or, you know, giving them a car, giving them shelter or something like that. But the the calling is really to bring them into a beautiful place with the Lord. And yeah. so we don't think that way. We, we think that we, this is enough. If I gave mm-hmm. them a free car, if I did this, where the idea of drawing them into a tribe or into a, a better picture is actually to partner with the Lord to bring beauty in their chaotic life, to give them a picture that looks more like amazing grace, love, and mercy, and kind of a recipe of how they can move forward founded in the word of the Lord, that they don't have that, that's going to be freedom to get to where they're going. Yeah, and so there is evil all around us. And so I think the church does need to resist that evil and we resist by helping others, but we also resist it by loving our enemies. Yeah. I think the church doesn't often do a very good job at loving their enemies. So you miss all this when you're sitting there staring at your crystal ball, wondering, mm-hmm. when is it my turn to step up and be the church? Well, it's right now and you're of you. missing it because <laughs> you're looking into your crystal ball. And so that kind of paints a picture of what's wrong with dispensationalism, but also the reason I call this the bridge series is because now we're hitting our trajectory in this series of where we've been and where we want to go. So So yeah, so we're going to start a series next, um, really on looking at church leadership. Yeah. Um, the, the idea of church leadership, calling it like, is this a gifting or an office? Yep. We're going to go through, um, 
basically things of hierarchy, authority. Yeah. Do we see this in the Bible? What what what's an elder? What's a deacon? What's right. what's a pastor? We we see like the five ministry people colors or five yeah, giftings right. are are there 22 gifts right right <laughs> apostles prophets evangelists pastors what what teachers yeah what do all these mean according to the text not what we've made it out to be yeah today. a lot of times we've made these into offices but are we gonna we're gonna investigate are yeah is there ever a notion that this is an office for the church or are these gifts that are used for the whole body yeah um after that we're gonna kind of look at the gathering yeah. reimagine the gathering i think we might go through first corinthians 11 through 14 yeah. and dig into that because it's it's a text where we have an actual church gathering that that paul describes yeah and how to keep order and how to do it and so we're gonna look at does this look like the way we gather today right so most people realize that the way we gather today is really hard to be found in the scripture. You know, everything we've kind of turned church into or made it out to be, is that okay? I call that the evolution of the American mm -hmm. church. Is it okay that it's evolved to, you know, mega churches and this things like this? Or should it return to the picture that was kind of painted for us in 1 Corinthians? And yeah, and so we'll kind of end that with like looking at reimagining giving yeah. and reimagining like, what's the purpose of our church, of our buildings and yeah. things like that and it, is there some things that maybe we should we should rethink and what what does what does the bible point to in these things is there a better way to do all this so what i found is that most of the time if you could sit your pastor down and have this conversation with them they would say the church has evolved they might not use mm -hmm. that word but they would just kind of say it's unraveled to become what it is today and is that what Jesus described mm -hmm. the church to be? Is that what it's supposed to be? Are we okay with just ending up with a American modern version of what seems to work for everybody's busy lifestyles or would it be better to find a better version of it and try to get there? Yeah, so kind of in conclusion with all of this and the reason why we're probably going to spend at least six months to a year on ecclesiology, the study of the longer, church. Yeah, because <laughs> we believe ecclesiology is probably one of the most important doctrines. Yet, it's not really studied super deeply. Yeah, and it's also led to everyone in at least Western Christianity focusing on the future and heaven rather than living here and now as colonies of heaven, yeah. the church the here on earth. Yep. The outpost, yep. So as we move forward, we're, this is where this series gets really, really fun because we're going to start looking at what the Bible actually says to live like within the church body and we're going to start asking questions of can this still be done, should this still be done, what would have to happen in Before order for us to take on that mindset. So that's the exciting place where we're moving. We're going to start looking at like, what would it look like to do this? And, you know, I say some churches do this really poorly. There's, they're so far off the Bible grid that they're just doing whatever they want. But there are some churches that I think still have the intent to follow the precepts of the Lord, to live wholly devoted, completely in communion, as disciples were called, but they just don't know how to do that in modern America because the pages of the scripture look so different than what we live in today, specifically in America. Now, if we all went and lived in some third world country mm -hmm. in Africa, tribal nation, it might be a lot easier to live that way. Mm -hmm. But that's what we're going to work through, and I'm super excited to get on this journey. Yeah, well, thanks for joining us today. It's a little bit of a recap and a bridge episode and talking about a topic we've been asked a lot about so thanks for uh listening to some of our squirrel moments yep. and uh we're looking forward to have you join us for the rest of our church series next time we're going to be looking at church leadership may god bless you and keep you